Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Now we're going to dive into um, the Textus Receptus. We're going to talk a little bit more about how it came together. We're going to talk about each person's version and additions. Uh, so we're going to talk about Erasmus, Robert Stephanus. Erasmus is one of my favorite people in history. As Christians, we believe in the infallible inspiration of God's word. Then we believe that God will preserve his word. Heaven and earth will pass away before any part of God's word passes. Faith in Jesus Christ must be in accord with his word, which demands that we have them. Now, God said faith. Where does faith come from? And hearing by what? If you don't have God's word, how can you have faith? Romans 10. Turn there real quick. We'll read it real fast. I mean, I think most of you could quote it, but it's worth looking at. We haven't turned in the Bible in a little while. So Romans 10, verse 17. So then. Now, let's go back a little bit. I want you to see the context of this passage and what makes it so incredible. Look back at verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, praise the Lord. Anybody wants to be saved can just call upon the name of the Lord. Well, there's a little bit more to it than that. What's the process? Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, that's a good question. Are you just, is it just lip service or have you believed? Are you just saying, I know Jesus? I can't tell you, Gross and I, go, you know, we go out and we talk to people and Everybody knows Jesus. It's very rare. We had a girl yesterday who was honest. She's like, a couple people yesterday who said, I I don't know much about him. I I don't know. But almost everybody else, oh, yes, I know Jesus. I'm saved. I'm born again. Really? How are you born again? I don't know. (laughs) Well, tell me how to be born again. I don't know. You just come join my church. No idea. No clue. Well, then how do you call on, on Jesus Christ if you never believed? But it goes further. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? That's pretty reasonable, isn't it? Like, 
if, if you're going to call upon someone, you need to first believe in him. In order to believe in him, you need to hear about him. And this is what's so unique about the born-agains that roam around. They have no idea who Jesus is. They have no clue what Jesus did for them. They have no idea how to be born again. They just say, I'm born again. Well, how did you hear? Hear what? <laughs> well, how to be born again? I joined a church. We're the born-agains. Well, that's, that's not going to cut it. You're going to sit in a church pew of, of a bunch of people who call themselves born again and then die and go to hell. Because you did not call, you did not believe, and you have not heard. And many of them, when I show them in the Bible that you must be born again is there, you know what they say? I had no idea that was there. It's amazing. But it continues. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Somebody's got to go tell them. The Holy Spirit isn't going to make it magically drop on their head. Somebody's got to pass out the tracks. Somebody's got to tell them the gospel. Somebody's got to give them the John and Romans. Somebody's got to hold up the sign. Somebody's got to get on the, 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 the speaker and preach. Somebody has to go tell these people, and that somebody is us who have believed. Right? So, verse 15, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. There's a brother in our church who preached the whole sermon about how beautiful his feet are. <laughs> as he preaches the gospel. And how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel. It says, and, 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 and how shall they preach except they be sent? God has given every single Christian the ministry of reconciliation. You've all been sent. No more excuses. Every one of us, got, the Lord told every single Christian... Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So people sit in the church and say, well, I mean, I just haven't been sent. Yes, you have. (laughs) No more excuses. Everybody needs to go. Everybody needs to preach the gospel. It's everybody who has trusted in Jesus Christ's responsibility. But then look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And that is unbelievably true. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then we're going to get the summary. All right. This is going to be summed up. Verse 17. So then. All right. So if I say, if I'm explaining something to you and I walk you through the process and we get to the end of the process and I say, okay, so then, based on all of that, this is true. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Except the word of God is only true in the originals, and we don't have the originals, so you don't have the word of God. So we just have this book here that we parade around like it's the word of God, though it doesn't really have the word of God in it. And so then everybody has to be lost. If nobody has God's word, if it's in some original document that doesn't exist anymore, or in some document that we can't read, then we're in trouble. So if we're going to say we have God's word and we can prove we have God's word, and I think we can in this book, and faith cometh by hearing, and without faith, it is impossible to what? To please God. It is impossible to please God. But faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How are we going to please God if we don't have God's word to hear and obtain faith. 
faith has to have a subject. It has to, have, it has to be placed somewhere. All right, so if I'm going to sit down, I'm placing my faith in that chair that it's going to hold me up. All right, so when you say I have faith, what does that mean? Faith in what? Where does faith come from? Well, it comes from hearing God's word. So then what that should mean is that you're placing your faith in what you heard from God. And the only way you can hear from God is if you have his written word. You have to have God's word. Why would God inform you that faith comes by hearing his word and then not give it to you? Not make it available to you. If you study the word of God, both historically and spiritually in in what it says, and you come to the conclusion that nobody has God's word, something is wrong with your brain. Because it doesn't work historically and that doesn't work biblically. God said, I'm preserving my word. I'm going to make it available to people so they can have it. And it just so happens the number one spoken language everywhere in the world is English. And the word of God was miraculously put into into the English language making it widely available all over the world. God preserved his word through the traditional text, then through the Masoretic text and the received text, the Textus Receptus, uh, and then finally in English through the King James Bible. Now Now, that does not mean it can't be put in other languages. I think it has been and it should be, both. But it, you'd be hard-pressed to find an event like the one that surrounded this book. Okay, so then if you come back to the King James-only camp, and then you go even further to the guys that think the Bible can only be in English, there's some validity for their reasoning to think that. Because there has never been a single process put together the way this book was put together. There has never been another event surrounding the Bible like the one that put together the English Bible. Now, I don't agree with their outcome. I, I think God put together a miraculous event, not an inspiration, but it was definitely a work of God that gave us our English Bible, and there's never been anything else like it. And, and, I, and the reason I think it, it went that way is because the English language was widely becoming the most spoken language in the world, and today, now it is. Wybie uh, and I looked it up, and several charts compare, they say English and, and Chinese are neck and neck, and some say Chinese is, is spoken more than English. Name one person in here who, spoke, who speaks Chinese. Name a country in the world where all their people are learning Chinese. There's not one. It doesn't exist. Name a country in the world that's learning English. Nearly every single country in the world learns English to some level and speaks it. Nobody's in a rush to learn Mandarin Chinese. You, know, you couldn't name five people that speak Chinese. But you can name five people that speak English. You can name a lot of people that speak English. And the Word of God is in English. All right, so the culmination was the King James Bible. The unity wrought by the traditional text, the Masoretic text, the Textus Receptus, and the King James Bible were once again divided by the ideologies of Westcott and Hort. The idea of unity greatly motivated men like Erasmus, as well as the men who followed him in their labors over the Textus Receptus. Erasmus was not a Bible-believing Christian, but he, he was a humanist. And 
And through that teaching, he wanted to see unity. He wanted to see people lifted up. He didn't want to see people harmed or left behind or, or hurt or, you know, that, that, that the ideas of humanism in Erasmus' day, they were very good. They were, they were, if people adopted them today, we'd have a much better world. Humanism today is about me. Make me happy. It's not about me trying to, to make the world a better place somehow, but that, that, that's, that's what Erasmus and other humanists taught. It was their responsibility to build the world up. It was not their responsibility to make the world cater to them. And today, humanism is very self-centered. Like, all of you need to make me happy. I've decided I have different gender pronouns, and you better use them or I'm going to call the police and have you arrested. I mean, could you imagine? I heard a guy the other day, uh, he was arguing with somebody over this stupid ideology that's overtaken America. And he said, well, since you have your own gender pronouns, I have my own adjectives. He said, I am handsome and I am intelligent. So anytime you refer to me, you need to call me handsome and intelligent. (laughs) And so he's like, that's how I identify. Those are my adjectives. And so you need to use them. And they were like, well, that's stupid. Yeah, (laughs) that is stupid. That's the point. Just like you can't come in here and tell me what pronouns. I mean, it's just... (laughs) Uh, anyways, that's not our subject for today. Um, and so Erasmus was a humanist, and he was a well-known humanist. The views of, of, of a humanist were best expressed by the writings. Here's another good name for you. Laurentius Valla. All right, so he, he was kind of the, uh, the leading mind in, in, his, in, in Erasmus' day when it came to humanism. And, and he was around from 1405 to 1457. He lived 52 years. Imagine that. 52 years is your lifespan. You die. Now, he, he was a famous scholar of the Italian Renaissance. He placed a major emphasis on the importance of... He believed this was highly important. Language. And that impacted Erasmus. He taught the decline of civilization during the Dark Ages. By the way, who was in control of the world during the Dark Ages? The Roman Catholic, not the Romans, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, imagine being a church who controlled the entire world politically. And when when historians put together the period of history where you ruled the world... The only name they could give it is the Dark Ages. That's how evil that church is. Not was, is. The reason they're not that way today is because they're so weak and ineffective. They don't have any power today. Uh, They're they're trying to regain some relevance and some power. Um, The only thing the Catholic Church is known for today is violating children. Outside of that, the Catholic Church is nothing. The Catholic Church spends... It's either five or fifty billion dollars a year. That's a big difference. So I need to look it up and verify it. I think it's five, five billion dollars a year, paying off the families of children they violate, so that they don't call the police and so they don't get them arrested. Why would you follow such a sick and twisted organization? So when they had power, they were murdering everybody that disagreed with them. 
Now that they don't have power, but they have riches, they violate children. But he, he taught the decline of civilization during the Dark Ages was due to the decay of the Greek and Latin languages. So he placed a particular emphasis on the Greek and Latin languages. What were the two groups of people that helped bring the West together and helped plunge the Texas Receptus into the rest of the world? The Greeks and the Latins. It was the Greek church and the Latin church. This man, who, who has nothing to do with Christianity, he's completely secular, he's a humanist, and he believed the decline of the Greek and the Latin language was, was related to the decline of, of civilization, the decline of the world. This reveals a historical importance for language. The ability to effectively communicate is unbelievably important. And the better you learn to effectively communicate with people, the better you can communicate and you can, you can d- disseminate information to them properly and clearly in a helpful manner. So learn to speak, learn to write. To combat this decline, he encouraged the study of classical Greek and Roman literature. Vala wrote extensively about the Latin Vulgate. He even wrote essays comparing the Latin Vulgate with certain Greek manuscripts he had in his possession. Erasmus greatly admired Vala and had some of his writings published. So certain of his writings that were not yet published, Erasmus had them published when he could. Vala argued the Greek texts he had in his possession were superior to the Latin Vulgate, which would be Jerome's. Latin Vulgate. So this man could sit down and read the Greek manuscripts, and he could read Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and he said that the Greek manuscripts that I have are superior to to Jerome's work. It didn't have to be that way. Jerome could have put out something great, but he chose to be a devil instead. He found several omissions. Does that sound familiar? And several additions to the Latin Vulgate when compared to his Greek manuscript. He also noted the wording in the Greek was superior to that of the Latin Vulgate. So apparently Jerome wasn't so great with words. There's, there's a movie. We're going to talk about William Tyndale. Who everybody, every Christian should know William Tyndale. is one of the greatest Christians to ever live. He's an incredible man. But there's a movie about him. And it, the movie is called God's Outlaw. It's about his life. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting because they... Should, they they have a scene in the movie uh, where he, he's translating um, in Hebrews when it says the author and finisher of our faith. And he's trying to piece together how to say that and how to express that. And, and he was so good with words that he could not only translate it properly, but then put it together in such a way that it was just beautifully written. And, and so it kinda, it, it, it's really interesting to see that scene and to see him go back and forth with words and, and words that would fit there and words that would work there, and he's trying, but he's trying to make it make sense and to flow well. And uh, apparently Jerome didn't have that ability, but William Tyndale certainly did. Because of these realities, Vala favored the Greek manuscripts over Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Erasmus published his writings in 1504, By 1514, major works were produced by the scholars of that day defending Jerome and his Latin Vulgate. So Erasmus is reading this man's writings, and this man is telling the world, this brilliant intellectual is telling the world that the Greek manuscripts are better than Jerome's Latin Vulgate. So Erasmus has it published and spread around the world, 
and immediately people get upset. And they start defending Jerome and start defending the Latin Vulgate. It's like a cult. Like you, it's like you buy into it and, and, and you have to defend the narrative. They immediately came out of the woodwork and began defending Jerome and his, his work. These scholars set out to attack anyone who spoke against the Latin Vulgate. They asserted it was the true New Testament text. <laughs> they knew that it came from corrupt documents. They knew that the Latin church refused to use it and that only the Catholic church would use it. And yet they began to attack Erasmus and Vala and began saying that this was the true text. You've got to have the Latin Vulgate, Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And, um, and so it, it, it stirred up a, a mess. As Erasmus prepared to publish his own Greek New Testament, which eventually came to be known as the Textus Receptus, he began receiving letters from these scholars requesting him not to publish his Greek text. They're like, please don't do this. Don't publish your text. Just use the Latin Vulgate. We just need the Latin Vulgate. We don't need, we don't need anything else. And um, praise the Lord, Erasmus did not give in to that pressure. One such scholar's name, here's another good name for you. This man deserved this name. Martin Dorp. Now, in English, that man, in America, that man would be made fun of endlessly. <laughs> Your name is Dorp? Martin Dorp. Uh, Martin Dorp, in his letter, he argued that if Jerome's Latin Vulgate... Now, listen to the thinking. If Jerome's Latin Vulgate has errors, then the church would have been in error for several years, and according to him, that was impossible. Now, he didn't say, demonstrate to me where the problems are. But somebody came to me and said, and they do it all the time in America. They come to you on the street and they say, you know this... This Bible is uh, full of errors. Oh, show me one. Well, I, I don't know where they are. <laughs> well, have you read it? Well, no. Well, then why are you telling me that there are errors in it? You've never read it, and you can't tell me where one is. Then I'm going to stick with my Bible. You didn't convince me. <laughs> All right, so I would not say, do you understand that if I'm wrong about this book, then I've been wrong about Christianity my whole life. You think about the thinking. My thinking is so superior, and I have decided this book is the perfect Word of God. So if you question that in any way, you're not questioning this book, you're questioning whether I was right or wrong, or whether my church was right or wrong. And that, that's, that's very arrogant. Who are you? Who is your church? In the dark ages, as you murder people one right after the other, I would say having the wrong text was the least of your worries. All those people you burned at the stake and all those people that you drowned and all those people that you beat. William Tyndale, you know, they killed William Tyndale. They tied him to a stake and they strangled him until he died. That is sick. Like Something is wrong with you. And you want me to be worried about you being wrong about a text? No, you've got much bigger problems that need to be worked out. Like, you need to be in jail <laughs> forever. So, that, that was their attitude, though. You can't question. If you question our text, then you're saying that we've been wrong this whole time. 
Uh, yeah. Now, if you come to me and you say, this book is wrong. Okay, let's, let's look at it. Show me where it's wrong. Well, I don't know where it's wrong. Okay, I know you don't because nothing's wrong with this book. Nothing's wrong with this book because you can't show me where something's wrong with this book. Not because I think there's nothing wrong with this book. You understand the difference? I, I didn't just decide this book is perfect. I, you can't demonstrate to me a single problem with this book. And because of that, I have no reason not to believe it. If you can show me a valid reason not to believe it, let's look at it. Um, but nobody, to my knowledge, has been able to do that. It's all subjective. It's all opinionated. And, um, and that's not going to work for me. When Erasmus published his first edition in 1516, these scholars began to write that this was an open condemnation of the church. Now again, let's think about, consider the thinking. Somebody published God's word. Publishing of God's word is automatically seen as a condemnation of your church. That's a problem. I could, I could hear Brother James now. Oh, no, somebody printed a King James Bible. We're finished. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. But Erasmus was already known as a rogue scholar who was rebelling against the Catholic Church. So it, it didn't affect him in any way. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I, I already dislike the Catholic Church, so I'm publishing it anyways. I don't, I don't care about your feelings being hurt that I published this document. Um, some said if the Latin Vulgate has one error, then the entire authority of the Holy Scriptures would collapse. Well, it turns out the Latin Vulgate has lots of errors. And so, sorry. His statement would be true if he were not referring to a corrupt text that they knew, that they knew was corrupt. Now, if you could objectively demonstrate this book has errors, that, that's a big problem. Like, that means that we have based everything we believe on this book. And if it could be clearly demonstrated this book has a problem, not, not all the opinions people have. We, uh, we were, Brother Gross and I were witnessing to a guy over here the other day, and, and he comes. We, I'd been talking to him for a while, and, and we left and went around the corner, and Gross had made a new friend and um, was talking to this guy. <laughs> and uh, the guy I had been talking to came around the corner. He said, I have another question. So I go around the corner. He said, someone told me that this Bible has has problems. I said, okay, well, name one of the problems. Well, he was asking me, where did Cain and Abel get their wives? This is an unbelievably common question based on stupidity. And so I said, I said, so what, what's the premise of your question? What, why, why are you asking that? He said, well, how, it says they had children, but the Bible doesn't tell us that, that they had wives. And I said, okay, I have a child. And he said, okay. I said, do I have a wife? He's just looking at me. I said, I have a child and I have a wife, but you've never seen either one of them. Does that mean they don't exist? And he just started laughing and he turned and walked away. I was like, so just because the, the Bible gave you the narrative of Cain and Abel for a reason, their wives were not part of the narrative. It doesn't matter. Now, the Bible goes on and on in Genesis 5 before God destroys the world in 6, 7, and 8, and tells you people are having children. 
I mean, that's the whole point of chapter 5 is so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. Not a single wife that I know of is mentioned. So uh, this is an awfully strange chapter (laughs) if nobody has a wife. Or maybe you could use a little common sense and assume there was at least a woman involved somewhere. I mean, there's, there has never been a child born without a woman, correct? Maybe Adam, okay? You can go back to Adam. He's the only one that, that, and Eve, okay? Those are the only two. Since Adam and Eve, everybody came from a womb and a woman, period. And, and so it's, you, you get these, these common, and this is how you know there's no validity to it. You hear it so much that you know they heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody, and they all, they're all just repeating it. None of them looked. None of them asked themselves any questions. None of them read the text. I said, you go back and you ask that guy, have you ever read? Ask him two questions. First of all, what, what book of the Bible and what chapter is the story of Cain and Abel in? And he's not going to know. And secondly, have you ever read it? And I guarantee you he's never read it. Maybe he has, but I'm, I'm guessing he's never read it. He said, okay, I'm going to go ask him. So if I ever see him again, we'll find out if he did. Uh, so so the, the, the point is, people are going to come and tell you this book has contradictions, it has errors, it has problems. And when you ask them what it is, it just so happens to align with everything Richard Dawkins said in his book. <laughs> So when people come to me on the street, sometimes this is what I'll do. They'll say, you know, that book has, that book's full of contradictions. I say, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you show me those contradictions so I can know. But here are the rules. It has to be contradictions that you found when you were reading this book, and it can't come from the internet, and it can't come from a Richard Dawkins book. And then the whole conversation's over, because they've never read it. They heard somebody on a YouTube channel Tell them there were errors in this book, and so they came and they thought it would be cool to repeat it to me. But I asked them for evidence, and they were not quite prepared for that part. <laughs> Why well, I heard there were errors. Yeah, you heard. You heard wrong. I've read the book. I've studied the book. I haven't found a single error. You've never read it. You've never studied it. Not taking your advice. He, published, he published his first edition in 1516. These scholars began to write, and they began to whine and cry and throw a fit. And um, they said that if there's a single error in the Latin Vulgate, then our whole... Our whole now, and this is the other thing. The Catholic Church doesn't rely on Scripture in any way. Why do you care if there's errors in your Bible? You don't use it. What does it matter? In fact, I was telling Gross, when we get to talking about William Tyndale... Uh, William Tyndale was, he had a hard time because he wanted to translate the Bible into English for people to be able to read it. And the Catholic Church said, if you do that, we're going to charge you and, and uh, they're not going to throw you in prison. They ended up choking him to death. They, they, you know, they're they're going to kill you. And um, this Catholic priest said, and, and you'll hear this again, but it's worth hearing again. Uh, he said, I would that the entire world would defy the word of God before they defied one word of the Pope. In other words, I don't care about the Word of God. What's the Pope say? That's my God. You know, and this is what William Tyndale said in response. He said, if God spares my life, I'll see it to it that a plowboy knows more of the Word of God than you do. And he did that. 
He was, everybody should know William Tyndale. He's an incredible man. All right, his statement would be true if, if, if he were talking about the Word of God. Secondly, the Catholic Church has never placed any emphasis on the authority of Scripture. So his logic is meant more for propaganda rather than defending the truth. The Catholic Church could not come to terms with the idea that the Greek Church, whom they hated, was used by God to preserve God's Word in the form of extant Greek manuscripts. Erasmus, through the influence of Vala and humanism, became a linguistic scholar. Thus, he was able to determine the validity of the Latin Vulgate as well as the Greek manuscripts. He agreed the Latin Vulgate was a corrupt and erroneous document. Therefore, he set out to correct the problem. He would produce the Textus Receptus. And praise the Lord, he did. Because he got the ball rolling and got things moving in the direction that would eventually bring us to the King James Bible. This was another big step in the process of getting us to the Bible. All right, now we're going to talk about Erasmus, five editions of the Textus Receptus. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about the process he went through, documents he used. We're going to do that for Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza. These were published between, who remembers? Good. 1516 to 1535. 1535 is when he published his last edition just before his death. Uh, Pope Leo X, as well as several other high-level Roman church leaders, agreed that the Greek manuscripts that came from the Greek church, that that was the true word of God. So so he had some, some people on his side within the Catholic church. And, and this first edition was dedicated to Pope Leo X. Now, who is the Pope that he defied, that he pushed against? Julius, Julius yes, the second, I believe. Uh, so, so Pope Leo X signed off on it. So he, he put in a dedication to Pope Leo X in, in the Textus Receptus. And then the dedication was followed by an exhortation to the reader, as well as an explanation and defense of the method used to produce the Greek text. So, remember, as these men would do this, these translators, they would often explain in the text how they came to their conclusions. They would put their method, their argument, their ideas, where they got this information from. They would put, they would put all that in the text. And so, Erasmus did the same. Uh, the dedication was followed by an exhortation to the reader. Uh, next, Erasmus' Greek New Testament, which... Uh, next was Erasmus' Greek New Testament, which was followed by Erasmus' own Latin version. He put out his uh, Greek version, Greek New Testament. And then after that, he put out his own Latin New Testament. Now imagine being able to do this. You can sit by yourself and just produce a Greek New Testament. And then you're like, you know, it'd be a good idea if I had a Latin version. <laughs> and just by yourself, make a Latin New, Test- New Testament. Now, why would you argue with men like this today? You had 47 men of this caliber. 54 were selected. 47 finished the work on the King James Bible. Why would you tell them they, they translated a word wrong? 
Wait till you see the process. Wait till you see how they did it and how many times it was reviewed. Every single word, sentence, chapter, book of the Bible was reviewed a minimum of 14 times by men like this. A minimum of 14 times. Possibly more. Unless you have the abilities of someone like Erasmus at this level of brilliance, you should probably just thank God for what you have and, and use it. So uh, finally, Erasmus included his own notes to the reader. So what's happening is he makes his Greek New Testament, right, which later came to be known as the Textus Receptus. When he puts out a net, another edition, he adds the Greek and the Latin together. In, 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 the, uh, in the book. So you have not only, when you, when you get a copy of the Textus Receptus, uh, you have not only his Greek work, but you also has, have his Latin work. All right? and, and, then, and then at one point, they added both Erasmus Greek, Erasmus Latin, and the Latin Vulgate. All three of them were side by side in, in, in one of the versions, which we'll get to in just a second. So, um, so that's what's happening here. He's adding all this all this information so that you can have it. Now imagine if you're a translator today and you want to learn how all this worked out. Well, if you can get a copy of one of these, he put his notes in it. You could learn a lot from somebody like that and, and, and figure out how they, how they did all this. So uh, it's pretty interesting if you like that kind of thing. In the second edition, Erasmus improved both his Greek and Latin text. And what year was that? 1519. So that's the first one. Second one. In the second edition, he improved his Greek and Latin text. This edition was notable for his updating John 1.1. He moved away from the use of the word speech. Now turn to John 1.1. And he changed it to word. That's pretty significant. So if you look at John 1.1, 1, 1, let's see what he did. I didn't just choose to do it. There, was, there were reasons. I don't have all his notes here, so we're not going to go into that. But um, you know, we, we've already demonstrated the, integri- the, the, the kind of integrity that, that um, Erasmus used. So he had a reason for doing this. He didn't just, you know, I feel like changing this word. <laughs> now let's read 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and, and our hands have handled the speech of life. Is that what it says? No. Now, if that verse said the speech of life, who would that be referring to? You have no idea. What if it says the word of life? What would be the cross-reference? You were just there. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word was made flesh. Well, who's the speech? <laughs> All right, now, but that's, that's what they went with in his first edition. In his second edition, they corrected that and made it right. And, um, and so now it makes sense and, and follows with the rest of the Bible. It doesn't, it's not some oddity that stands out. This was significant, a significant correction and even caused some to be angry because word, capital W-O-R-D, was also used in the Latin Vulgate. So now remember, the majority of the Latin Vulgate is the same as the, te- as the traditional text, right? 
So some people got mad because he changed it from speech to word because the Latin Vulgate said word. Well, just because the Latin Vulgate got something right doesn't mean you got to move away from it. It's the same thing with doctrine. Some people don't want to teach on the Holy Spirit because the Pentecostals, I mean, they, they ruin the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to sound like them. Who cares what they sound like? Teach about the Holy Spirit. It's in the Bible. He's God. It's in the Word of God. So you don't move away from something because somebody else has corrupted it, but you need to t- teach it and represent it properly. And so some people were upset with Erasmus because he did that. But Erasmus was not trying to make changes that agree with the Latin Vulgate. He was trying to ensure his translation was accurate, which is reasonable. Now, his third edition, which is in what year? 1522. Uh, it was... Uh, in this edition, it's notable because he reconciled 1 John 5, 7. So that, that was very important. It was omitted in previous editions, but Erasmus knew it belonged there. He knew it belonged due to the grammatical structure of the Greek. He knew it belonged there because of the writings of church fathers, many of whom quoted this passage. Uh, but he refused to include it unless he had a Greek manuscript that proved it belonged there. He had to have support. And, of course, we found out that he was given two manuscripts that verified its validity before the printing of this third, or this third edition. The fourth edition was reprinted when? 1527. Now, it was printed in a very different format. All right? This is what I was telling you about. The fourth edition included Erasmus Greek, Erasmus Latin, as well as Jerome's Latin Vulgate. So it had all three printed side by side so you could compare them and, and review them and see them all together. They were printed in three columns side by side so they could be compared and reviewed by the reader. The fifth edition was printed when? 1535. The fifth edition returned to using only the work of Erasmus. The Latin Vulgate was omitted. This was the last edition produced by Erasmus before he died. All right, the Greek manuscripts Erasmus used. Erasmus moved to Basel. Where do you remember that word from? The printer. Froben of Basel was his printer. He moved there. Now, when was his first edition printed? 1650. Somebody says 1615. <laughs> 1516. He moved to Basel in 1515. In less than a year, he prepared the first edition and got it to the printer. That's a, that's a heavy workload. Uh, he moved to Basel in 1515 to begin his work on the Textus Receptus. Upon arrival, five Greek New Testament manuscripts were available to him. Manuscript 1. It was 11th century... It contained the Gospels, Acts, and all epistles. Number two was 14th century. It contained the four Gospels. Number three, and uh, these had names, by the way, so let me, let me change the way we're doing this rather than numbering them. I'm going to give you their names, which will be very familiar. So this was Manuscript 1. That's its name. Remember, these, when they're collated, 
uh, they're given names. And so this is literally called Manuscript 1, or, or that, that's its name. This one is literally called Manuscript 2. This one is called 2AP. 2AP is the name of that manuscript. It is 12th century. Somebody have a question? It contains Acts and the Epistles. These, these, are the, these are the manuscripts he had physically present with him in Basel when he did the, the translation work. This next one is Manuscript 4, AP. It is 15th century, and it contained Acts and the Epistles. And then the last one was Manuscript 1R. It was 12th century, and it had the Book of Revelation. All right, so that, that's your entire New Testament. And a couple of documents represented multiple times. So you had plenty to look through and, and determine what, what was said. Now, Erasmus used Manuscript 1 and 4AP occasionally. But two, he prim- primarily relied upon 2 and 2AP. So these two were, were his primary documents that he referred to in Greek manuscripts. We're going to find out in a minute that he had other, other tools to reference. It is certain that Erasmus used other manuscripts, but there does not exist enough information to determine all that was there. These, they know they were there. His Latin version was produced at Oxford in 1505 to 1506. 1505 to 1506, he produced his Latin version. And it is certain he used manuscripts that differ from those he used to make his Greek New Testament. As Erasmus traveled, he had access to different manuscripts. And what he would do is he would carry his notebooks with him and he would sit down and examine these manuscripts and he'd make notes about them. So he used a different set of traditional text manuscripts to make his Latin version in 1505 to 1506. But then in 1515, when he gets to Basel, he uses these manuscripts to make his Greek version, but he's also got a stack of notes that he carries with him. And everywhere he went, he would review texts that he could get access to, and he would, he would look at them in depth and make notes about them. So he not only had these manuscripts, and he had his Latin version that he made from other manuscripts, but he had a huge stack of notebooks full of information that he had already put together. So he's got a lot of reference material to be able to put this together. And we're going to go through some of that in a minute. That'll be repeated. But again, there does not exist enough historical information to verify all the documents he used. It is widely understood that Erasmus would examine various manuscripts when he could gain access to them, and he would compile his own notes on these documents. Many historians believe he carried those notes with him to Basel for his work on the Greek New Testament. Erasmus looked for manuscripts in Greek or Latin, the two languages he had the greatest experience with, everywhere he traveled. And he, being a priest with the Catholic Church, he could get access to them. 
And he would just sit and just study them and, and make just tons of notes about them. From there, he could travel with his notes rather than attempting to travel with the manuscript itself, which may have been very precious and fragile and could, could have damaged it. So, I mean, you imagine a man who could do the work of 10 men in one hour sitting down to examine a manuscript, what those notebooks must, must have looked like and, and the information that was compiled in them. I mean, he didn't have our attitude towards study. <laughs> he studied and loved it. Erasmus had a habit of rejecting all manuscripts that came from Alexandrian lineage. They were well known to be corrupted through the edits of the men who possessed them. Thus, Erasmus would travel and study manuscripts that were Antiochian in nature. He would compile his notes, and when he made his way to Basil, he not only had reliable manuscripts, but he had several years of notes from various Greek and Latin versions of the Word of God. That's a lot of information to carry around, um, and he did that. All right, the notes and knowledge of Erasmus. Erasmus studied the writings and therefore the attitudes of the church fathers. He read and studied with the writings of Jerome, which led to his understanding of the corruption in Alexandrian manuscripts. If you read Jerome and he says, I edited the text, well, that would lead you to believe that the texts were edited (laughs) and not to use them. Does he change them? It seems like common sense, but uh, we can't get the rest of the world to agree with that. One of the boasts of modern translators is that they have better tools to use than the translators of old, like Erasmus. That might possibly be true, but they did not have better understanding of the problem than Erasmus. They're also much dumber than Erasmus. He was a brilliant man. You can have all the tools you want if you don't know how to use them, <laughs> that, that doesn't help you. Erasmus understood through his wide reading of various church fathers all the problems with various extant texts at the time. He went into his labor of the Latin and Greek texts with this understanding. He would put it in his notes, which were included in his printed New Testament, why he chose to, to, to go a certain direction with his translation work. So he would study the writings of the, of the men who had control over these documents, and he would learn what their attitude was towards the documents, and that would encourage him to either reject documents that came from there or to, to use them. And then he'd put in his notes in the printed text why he rejected these documents, why he rejected this reading or, or this way of, of wording things. And so the, it's just a wealth of information people could have at their fingertips if they would go look at it. But instead, they study Westcott and Hort, and they study Origen, and they study Jerome. They don't study Erasmus or Bergen or you know, any of the men who tried to preserve the Word of God, which is a shame. Now, the reader could not only read the translation, but they had the notes of the translator to help them gain further understanding. Now, we talked earlier that, that that's a double-edged sword. Because it could cause Erasmus to cause you to, to, to lead you in a certain direction. And, and you don't want that. But at the same time, you're trying to verify why he chose. Okay, so let's look at this. Um, some of the problems that Erasmus addressed will be familiar to you. You, the students here. Um, we have reviewed them as we study this material. Matthew 6.13, the Lord's Prayer. Everybody remember that? When they deleted part of the Lord's Prayer, Erasmus said, I'm not doing that. And here's why. 
And he explained why. Matthew 19, 17 to 22, the rich young ruler. Everybody remember that? Right? He, didn't, he didn't follow Jerome in origin. Mark 16, 9 through 20, the last 12 verses of Mark, which many new Bibles completely delete because it was deleted in Alexandrian manuscripts. Uh, Erasmus kept them. He added them. He said they have to be there. John 7, 53 through 8, 11, the woman taken in adultery. They completely removed that passage in, in many Alexandrian texts because they can't believe Jesus would let a woman go who was caught in adultery. They called her in the act. He's just going to let her go? Well, you didn't go back and study what the law said, and so you delete an entire section of the Bible because you don't understand why it should be there. Erasmus did not do that. Every omission and every addition to God's word that we have examined through the course of this class on the Bible, Erasmus dealt with the same problems in his own day and left behind his notes on why he remained with the traditional text and rejected the Alexandrian. Erasmus left behind a gold mine of knowledge and information regarding the validity, the problems, the debates of New Testament manuscripts that go all the way back to the second century. If you wanted to be a translator today, I mean, that's just a wealth of information. But nobody cares. He even added some of his own conclusions and explained his reasoning behind them. All right, so the Latin Vulgate and the Textus Receptus. So far, we have seen that God preserved his word through the age of manuscripts. All right, so now we're, we've talked about all these manuscripts. Now we're leaving the manuscripts and we're going to this Greek New Testament that's going to compile all those manuscripts into one book. I, I, could, I couldn't imagine how it must have felt to someone who loved the Word of God to have the entire New Testament in one book. They could actually sit down and read it. They didn't have to go beg some monk in a monastery somewhere who refused to let you have access to it to just let me see it. No, now it's compiled in one book and you can have it at home. That had never happened before. It, it, it was, it's just it's an unbelievable event. So we're leaving the age of manuscripts. All right? God preserved his work in manuscript form through the, tr- through the traditional text. And now we're going to shift into the Textus Receptus where all those manuscripts are being brought into one book, into one place. All right? um, thousands of copies of manuscripts were preserved and protected throughout the centuries until the printer was invented. When the printing machine was invented, man, that, that changed the world. You know, how can a printer print this manuscript that's in Antioch, Syria, is in England? You know, it's, it's just not going to happen. But Erasmus can compile and edit and put together the entire New Testament in Greek form in one book, and that printer can print that. And that's, that's what we're moving towards here. Historically, the world moved into the era of printing. The Word of God went from existence in scattered manuscripts to, com- to combined and printed versions of the Masoretic Text and the Textus Receptus. Remember, so, some of the first uh, items to be printed was the Masoretic Text. In, in different forms. Uh, when it comes to the Textus Receptus, the editorial process that Erasmus went through further preserved the Word of God. Erasmus, with his studies, his notes, and his understanding of Greek grammar, was able to put the New Testament together in complete form. 
It never happened before. There was a race for it to happen. We're going to find out in a second. The reason Erasmus did it so quickly in less than a year is because in Spain, the Catholic Church was working on doing the same thing. And whoever got this done first was going to get their text out to the world, and and that's the direction the world was going to go. And so if he didn't get this done before they got it done in Spain, the Catholic Church, you never would have heard of Erasmus. We may still be in the Dark Ages. But the Word of God prevailed, and the Word of God was scattered across the world. And then, and then this printing, the Textus Receptus, helped further kick the door open for the Protestant Reformation and break Rome's hold on the world and, and expose the entire world to light from the Word of God. So Erasmus, with his studies, his notes, studying one manuscript of Byzantine lineage may present several problems. The manuscript may somehow be incomplete. A portion may be torn. Another portion may have worn over time and is no longer readable. All sorts of issues can happen with these old manuscripts. So you need several copies to be able to put together the the, the full book of the Bible or a full chapter. I mean, if you think about a really old piece of paper that you might have, if it got wet, if it got you know wrinkled, if it got, I mean, if all sorts of things could have happened to it, over time it's going to be unreadable. Right? And so these things began to happen to manuscripts, but all we have is what still exists. Well, that, that, that needs to be examined and compiled. That's why it's a blessing. He, as you look at the manuscripts he has, not only his notes and not only his Latin version, but he's got multiple copies of many of the books of the Bible, except for the book of Revelation, which he has in his Latin version, and he has in the Latin Vulgate, and he has in, in, in other areas, plus this, this manuscript here. So... But he's got multiple copies of everything to be able to compare and verify that he's got the complete Word of God, which is a blessing. Because of this reality, a a multitude of manuscripts might be necessary to piece together a complete version of a book of the Bible. Erasmus understood this, and he was capable of taking on such a task. Interestingly, the Latin Vulgate proved to be helpful. Remember, the majority of Jerome's Latin Vulgate is the same as the traditional text. So where it went astray, he let it go astray. But where it was correct, he could use it. And and so it ended up being helpful, uh, even in its corrupt form, to correct this problem. We must remember that Jerome was originally handed pure manuscripts, and then he chose to edit them in various ways. And, and, And so we have his Latin Vulgate. But numerous portions of manuscripts were not edited, and they served to assist Rasmus with determining the validity of complicated passages which have a similar problem when dealing with the Luganda Bible. It was translated from the revised version created by Westcott and Hort. The good news for us is that 80 to 85% of the original revised version is congruent to the King James Bible. This will assist us in producing an accurate Luganda Bible. It means that nearly 85% of the work is already done. It just needs to be edited, you know, verified. So we've got to go through and verify the passages that we, we know that should be correct and fix the passages where we know the revised version made changes. Now, this is not your current 1960-whatever Luganda Bible. That Bible is complete garbage. It is useless. Again, you should keep reading it. You should keep using it. And you should encourage other people to use it because we don't have anything else to give them. But until that time, what, what we're going to do is go back to the the 1890s version of the Luganda Bible, and we're going to start with that as our, as our starting point and translate 
as necessary, edit and translate as necessary till we have a Bible that is accurate with the King James Bible. We need to verify each passage matches the King James Bible, and then we need to correct the passages where the RV departed from the KJV. An example of the Latin Vulgate assisting the Textus Receptus is Acts 8.37. Somehow Erasmus did not have a Greek text that had this complete passage in, in his possession. He knew again grammatically it had to be there. Verse 36 ends with a question, but verse 38 does not answer the question. Erasmus was a man of integrity. He showed it repeatedly in his dealings with the Textus Receptus. If he could not find proper support, he would not add the verse, though he knew it needed to be there. The passage is included in manuscript E, a 6th or 7th century uh, manuscript. It was quoted by Irenaeus in 180. It was quoted by Cyprian in 250. And it is present in the Old Latin Vulgate. This provided Erasmus with enough evidence to add this verse, though he was not fully aware it, uh, it needed to be there. Okay. All right, the human aspect of the Textus Receptus. God uses sinful men to accomplish his will. That's a reality. All right? And that's one of the arguments people have against the Word of God. They, Don't you know men wrote the Bible? And they say that like it's this earth-shaking news. Well, who did you think wrote it? Did you think... Did you think, I mean, did you think angels came down with pen and paper and started writing things down? Of course men wrote it. Now, it's God's words, but God used men to write it. And if he used a man to write it, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, yes, he used sinful men to write his word. That, that's just the reality. This is part of the problem unbelievers have with God's word. They can't imagine God could use a sinner to produce perfection. Erasmus' original edition was created quickly. He arrived in Basel in 1515, and the first edition was printed in 1516. That's an entire New Testament in less than a year that he put together. That's moving fast. Um, even for Erasmus, that's fast. The first edition was full of typographical errors. All typographical errors were corrected in later editions by Erasmus himself. So you imagine he's just rushing through this and he ends up, you know, spelling a word wrong or, uh, you know, if he writes as, as nicely as I write, um, it was probably easy for the printer to understand. And um, so he had to go back and fix those. Critics of Erasmus and of Froben of Basil claim the rushed production of the Texas Receptus was nothing more than a money-making venture. Now, of what we've learned of Erasmus... Do you think he was after money? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, it might have been, but there is certainly more, more to it than that. I don't doubt that they made money off this. Erasmus may not have, but the printer does. The printer gets, if you get to be the printer that does this in those days, this had to be commissioned by a king or a pope. So that made you very important because you couldn't print anything without permission from your government or from the pope. And um, so, so I'm sure he got a lot of benefit from it, but, but that wasn't what Erasmus was after. When Froben hired Erasmus to quickly put together a complete Greek New Testament, he was in a race against, a race against the Catholic Church. The Spanish Cardinal Ximenes. The Spanish Cardinal Ximenes was preparing to print his own Greek New Testament that would have been Roman Catholic in nature. This was also taking place during the Spanish Inquisitions. Who knows anything about those? 
No, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a war. The Spanish, Inqu- the Spanish Inquisitions, you would be questioned about your faith. And if you didn't give the right answer or recant of the wrong answer, you were put to death in some of the most heinous and horrible ways you can imagine. So many people died during the Spanish Inquisitions. It, it, was, it was insane. It was horrible. Um, this, this was taking place during the Spanish Inquisitions, a time when the Catholic Church would brutally torture and murder dissidents. At the same time, the Protestant Reformation was preparing to begin. The first edition of the Textus Receptus was printed and distributed throughout Europe one year, one year, before Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg. So, Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic priest, he's sent on, I I forget the entire story, but he's sent on this uh, task, and uh, he's going to, he has some involvement in, with the Book of Romans. He's never seen a Book of Romans. The Catholic Church doesn't care about the Word of God. And at the same time, if you're going to see the Book of Romans, it's going to be in a manuscript form somewhere where you, know, you can't just, you know, could you drop off my Bible at my house and let me read it? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So through the process of accomplishing this task he's sent on, he ends up reading the Book of Romans. And he learns that salvation is by faith, through, through, by, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And it completely ruins his ability to be a, a Catholic priest. <clears throat> that coupled with the same problems Erasmus had, the, the drunkenness, the adultery, the fornication, the, the crookedness of the Catholic Church, Martin Luther was sick of it. So he writes his 95 theses, his accusations against the Catholic Church, takes it to the Roman Catholic Church in Wittenberg and nails it to the front door. (laughs) And the whole world fell apart. When he did that, it it, it was open rebellion against the Catholic Church. And Martin Luther was another man like Erasmus. Due to his brilliance, his work ethic, his intelligence, he was almost untouchable. People wanted, the Catholic Church wanted him, but the government in Wittenberg and the surrounding areas refused to give him up. And, and, and at great cost. It was going to get them in a lot of trouble if they didn't give up Martin Luther. And they didn't give him up. And uh, he refused to recant. And it just kicked the door open for the, for the Protestant Reformation. And then one year later, to make matters even worse for the Catholic Church, Erasmus prints the Greek New Testament and begins to spread all throughout Europe. Now people have the Word of God in their hands. They don't have to go like Martin Luther to some monastery somewhere or to the Vatican and, and find some collection of text and read it. They have it. And they have it in proper form. And so it spreads all over the world. Um, this was also taking place in, at the same time the Protestant Reformation was preparing to, preparing to begin. The first edition of the Textus Receptus was printed one year and distributed throughout Europe one year before Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door of the Catholic Church. These facts together reveal to us more was taking place than a printer trying to make money. God was preserving his word. And God was going to break this hold the Catholic Church had on the world. If Ximenes were able to produce his Greek New Testament first, the Protestant Reformation may never have may have been delayed. And therefore the, the King James Bible may have been delayed. Human factors related to the Bible are very real, but so is the preservation of God 
and both must be understood. It's not a problem for you to tell me that men, sinful men, had a part in the the Bible. I I get that. But so did God. You you don't get to pick one. You don't get to say, well, men, men played a role in the Bible, but God played no role whatsoever. That's not true. Uh, God used sinful men to accomplish his work with the Bible. And so now today we have the word of God. And God is fully capable of doing that. He has no trouble. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.